The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Basics. Last time we discussed antithesis, and so by extension I felt it was only appropriate to extend the conversation to include the idea of apposition. Very often, with any analysis of poetry or of text like this, we're stuck with very old words and names for things. This is partly because the poetic metres go all the way back to ancient Greek and Latin, and so we have words like pentameters and hexameters, and then ideas come from the study of rhetoric and poetry and other ideas over the course of several centuries. The ideas themselves are far more accessible than the words that describe them. That's a rather long paragraph to make a short point. Don't be put off. The few complicated words we have are just names for techniques and strategies that unlock what Shakespeare is doing and show how he's doing it in a clear, accessible way. Antithesis is the presentation of opposing ideas, as we discussed last time, to be or not to be is a rather succinct example. The balancing of such opposites is crucial to how Shakespeare builds up his speeches, images and arguments, but it's not the only way he does so. Our next building block is the way that he can present us with word upon word or one phrase juxtaposed with another so that their meanings start to build a very complicated picture. And this is called apposition. As I mentioned last time too, it's not as if the pleasure or excitement of listening to Shakespeare's language is our ability to note that there are X many examples of antithesis or Y many instances of apposition. But we are past merely listening to the language, and this series is designed to examine these basic building blocks that can build a bridge to Shakespeare's language. Let's start this one with one of the speeches I know best in all of Shakespeare, since I've actually acted the part. It's one of very few for which I can say that. It's the opening of Richard III, in which the title character introduces himself and the world of the play. I'll read the whole speech and then we'll look at what's going on. Now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by this son of York, and all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war hath smoothed his wrinkled front, and now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. But I, that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking-glass, I that am rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph, I that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world scarce half made up, and that's so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them, why, I, in this weak piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time, unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain, and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Plots have I laid, 
inductions dangerous, by drunken prophecies, libels and dreams, to set my brother Clarence and the king in deadly hate, the one against the other. And if King Edward be as true and just as I am subtle, false and treacherous, this day should Clarence closely be mewed up about a prophecy which says that G of Edward's heirs the murderer shall be. Now this is a fabulous speech, and the prime example of the notion that the bad guys always get the best lines. Richard introduces himself as the villain of the piece, tells us that he's going to be wicked, and even starts to explain how he will do what he will do. If you don't know this play, go on, treat yourself. It's a marvellous piece of drama. The speech is also very conveniently full of apposition. That's why I chose it. There are quite a few antitheses too, for good measure. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. We have winter juxtaposed with summer, easy enough, antithesis, and then discontent and glory too. All the clouds are buried in the ocean. We go from one extreme to another yet again. And there's a lot of imagery for the first four lines of a play. Richard is also summing up the whole of the Wars of the Roses thus far. York has prevailed. It's really not a bad opening at all. To keep things moving, he repeats now, as if he's starting another paragraph. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, our stern alarms changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. This is quite a long sentence, but each line gives us a new image. This is how apposition works. Image after image after image, the situation becomes clearer. War is over, and we are wearing the laurels of victory. And so shields are now decorative instead of military. Military calls have turned into parties and marches have turned into dances. Impressively, Richard, or rather Shakespeare, uses a kind of antithesis within each of these successive phrases. It's all solid exposition laying out the scene, but we get both of these working at the same time. Antithesis and apposition. The ideas get even more elaborate now as Richard describes war itself as a person. Grim-visaged war hath smoothed his wrinkled front. He describes the change in the face of war, that it has gone from wrinkled to smooth. And we get another few apposite images. And now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. Richard is mocking the change from war to this weak, piping time of peace and juxtaposes himself with this change in the world. He describes himself in a long series of related images, each a clearer and crueler description of how the world sees him and how he sees himself. But before we start to feel too sorry for him, he continues, And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair, well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. This is a glorious example of apposition. Because I can't do this and this, I'm instead going to do this and this. It's just very clearly juxtaposed ideas telling a very clear story. He continues, Plots have I laid, inductions dangerous, by drunken prophecies, libels and dreams, to set my brother Clarence and the king in deadly hate, the one against the other. Even in the way he lists his wicked plans, by things as unreliable as drunken prophecies, libels and dreams, he will set his two brothers against each other. 
I love the fact that in the middle of a conversation about juxtaposition, Richard himself conveniently acknowledges that his very strategy will be to set his brother Clarence and the king in deadly hate, the one against the other. He could be giving a lesson in opposition himself. Next up, we get another antithesis-apposition combo. And if King Edward be as true and just as I am subtle, false and treacherous... He's arranged the chess pieces so that if Edward is as good as he himself is evil, then the plan will work. And Clarence, their other brother, will be sent to prison because of a prophecy that says that G of Edward's heirs the murderer shall be. Everybody in Shakespeare's audience would have known that Richard is manipulating the coincidence. Richard starts with or, obviously, but he's also the Duke of Gloucester with a G. And for the most part, Shakespeare's audience would have believed that Gloucester was the one who murdered Edward's heirs, better known as the princes in the tower. Poor Clarence, the other brother, has the first name George, and he's something of a sitting duck. Before I get any more carried away, we leave the world of Richard III. Rest assured that we will come to it in the book club later in the year, but we are going to go through all of the histories in order, and in that sequence, Richard comes last. Meanwhile, in the example of a speech from Richard III, we get a very exciting worldview from the bitter, funny, sarcastic perspective of its anti-hero. All of the mounting images and appositions present his worldview as though he's giving us a trailer of what's to come, a map to all the dark corners of his story. It's a very clear and a terrific introduction to the play. But apposition can also become too much of a good thing. Back to our other purpose... Have a listen to this speech from Polonius. Give thy thoughts no tongue, nor any unproportioned thought his act. Be thou familiar, but by no means vulgar. Those friends thou hast, and their adoption tried, grapple them to thy soul with hoops of steel. But do not dull thy palm with entertainment of each new-hatched, unfledged comrade. Beware of entrance to a quarrel, but being in, bear it that the opposed may beware of thee. Give every man thy ear, but few thy voice. Take each man's censure, but reserve thy judgment. Costly thy habit, as thy purse can buy, but not expressed in fancy, rich, not gaudy. For the apparel oft proclaims the man, and they in France, of the best rank and station, are of a most select and generous chief in that. Neither a borrower nor a lender be, for loan oft loses both itself and friend, and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. This above all, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. Hamlet as a play comes a good few years after Richard III in Shakespeare's career, and as such there's a fluency, a sophistication in the way that he uses language that develops and continues to develop as the plays go on. Here, Polonius is trying to give his certain precepts to Laertes, and he's almost too complicated. You can hear for yourself how many balancing ideas he's trying to incorporate. Have a go of laying out all of these ideas, and see if you can determine when he's using antithesis or apposition, or even both at the same time. See if you can identify all of the images, or pairs of images, and then give each its own time and space. Weigh them against each other. Give each its form and pressure. It's easy enough to write Polonius off as a windbag, but if you follow the images, the appositions, you'll see that he's also a very sophisticated thinker. And with that little exercise laid out for you, I'll sign off for now, 
and I'll speak to you next time.